of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 13, which can be found on page 468 of the Old Testament portion of your pew Bibles. Listen now for God's word for us this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, our second scripture reading also comes from the Old Testament, contrary to what is printed in your bulletins, but it can still be found on page 17, just in, your, in the Old Testament, in your pew Bibles. Please listen for God's word coming from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. The, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there, an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to, to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This morning, illumine our steps as we journey together to deepen our faith. Amen. I don't know what's on your summer reading list, but in my household, with a three-and-a-half-year-old having a very large say in the matter, it's the Berenstain Bears. For those of you who might not know, The Berenstain Bears is a series of children's books featuring a mama bear, a papa bear, and two cubs, brother bear and sister bear. In each book, the family learns a valuable lesson about things like bullying or strangers or chores or good sportsmanship or the dangers of too much TV or screen time. One of the books that I read to my son Leo recently was called The Berenstain Bears Forget Their Manners. In the story, brother and sister bear are taught that there are certain ways you should and should not talk to others, 
especially adults. They learn how it's polite to use words like please and thank you, and they learn how it's rude to interrupt others or call people names. It's a good lesson for kids, and in light of our political climate today, probably not a bad lesson for adults either. But all of this got me thinking, are there certain ways we should or should not talk to God? What sorts of things is it okay to bring up? When we pray, should it be all hallelujahs and amens? And when we sing hymns, should it be all amazing grace and great is thy faithfulness? I recently heard a song on a radio station here in Atlanta that offers an answer to these questions. The song was called Who I Am, and it was by a Christian group known as, uh, known as Point of Grace. And one of the lines in the songs, the singer addresses God and says, quote, who am I to give you, God, anything but praise? Who am I to give you anything but praise? In the context of the song, the presumed answer to the question, who am I to give you anything but praise, is that when addressing God, it would be impolite and maybe even inappropriate to utter anything other than happy songs and joyful prayers. The underlying theology of this song seems to be that God doesn't want and maybe can't even tolerate hard words, sad words, words of loneliness, and words of doubt. Now, whether or not you tune into Christian radio stations in Atlanta or have ever heard of this song from Point of Grace, I suspect that many of us here end up feeling the same way. To be a good Christian, to be a faithful Christian, we must put on our Sunday best tidy up our emotions, say no to the blahs, and limit our words to God to praise and joy. Even when we find ourselves face to face with hardship or loss or hurt, it seems that the only Christian thing to do is to look on the bright side of life, knowing that God wouldn't want anything other than our praise. God ends up seeming a lot like that figure Eveline from the 1974 Broadway musical The Wiz when she sings, don't nobody bring me no bad news. That's what God ends up seeming like for many of us. In my experience, this view is evident in many Christian circles today. We hear it from preachers in the health and wealth or prosperity gospel tradition. We hear it, uh, or we find it in popular Christian books like Joel Olstein's Every Day of Friday, how to be happier seven days a week. The all good news, all the time mentality is even reinforced in mainline churches like our own through our tendency to sing and pray mostly uplifting and positive words. By all accounts, most of us end up believing that speaking honest words of lament would not only be bad manners, but would show us or would be evidence of a lack of faith. What sorts of things is it okay to say to God? The book of Psalms gives us a very different answer than the song I just quoted from Point of Grace. The book of Psalms is ancient Israel's prayer book. With few exceptions, what we find in the Psalms is not so much the voice of God addressing humanity, but rather the voice of humanity addressing God. As such, its language tends to be refreshingly honest and vulnerable. Across the Psalter, the psalmist probes the full range of human emotions and experiences, from the heights of joy to the depths of despair, from the comforting care of God the shepherd to the despairing valley of the shadow of death. This is why the great theologian John Calvin once described the psalms 
as reflecting the full anatomy of the soul. It exposes the fullness of who we are and what we experience. In the psalm, we find faith unfiltered. The psalmist never seems to feel the need to tidy up his feelings, to parade out niceties and cliches when someone asks, so how are you doing? The psalmist's candor and honesty is nowhere more evident than in the type of psalm that we read just moments ago. Known as a lament, Psalm 13 dares to bring before God something other than praise. Consider how Psalm 13 begins. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? To most, these words seem neither polite nor pious. The psalmist is speaking honestly about moments of loss that leave him feeling discouraged, dislocated, and disheartened. In these moments, it can feel like God is absent and perhaps even indifferent to our pain. When the psalmist aims these interrogatives at God, he's not looking for information. He's not looking for a number of days that this uh, period of loneliness is going to last. Rather, these questions are a form of protest and maybe, maybe even a form of accusation. The psalmist is coming to terms with the fact that things are not as they should be. Why, O oh God, are you hiding your face precisely at this time when I need to see you? Why, O oh God, have you called yourself Emmanuel, God with us, when now you are so absent? As jarring as these words of complaint might be, they are nevertheless words of faith. Rather than turning away from God, rather than succumbing to indifference or atheism, the psalmist stays in dialogue with God. The psalmist stays in the faith conversation. These complaints presume that even in moments of disorientation, even in those moments when life seems to be falling apart, God gives space to cry out with petitions like those we find in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 13. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. In my estimation, one of the goals of these petitions is not just to ask for help, but rather is to elicit divine pathos that is to arouse God's feeling of pity and compassion by means of a vivid description of the psalmist's precarious situation. Unless God responds, so the psalmist prays, and responds now, all will be lost. This is the situation that we find the psalmist in here in Psalm 13. But then, in the last two verses, in verses five to six, something surprising happens. There's a transition, maybe even a conversion, from pain and petition to trust and hope. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What we see here is that the arc of Psalm 13 eventually bends towards praise. So maybe, maybe that point of grace song isn't so wrong after all. This psalm, even a psalm of lament, ends in praise. But I think it's important to add a few caveats here. In the course of reading this psalm, the transition seems to happen instantaneously. There's petition in verse 4 and then trust in verse 5. It happens that quickly. 
But I think it's more possible that this psalm is giving us a snapshot of what was really a long, long process. The gap between the petition of verse 5 and the trust in verse, excuse me, excuse me, the petition of verse 4 and the trust in verse 5 might best be measured in weeks or months or maybe even years. The transition is not instantaneous. In addition, the words of hope that we find at the end of the psalm wouldn't be possible without the words of lament that precede it. For until there is an honest embrace of pain and loss and hopelessness, until we can name that the reality of life uh, is, is not great outside of the garden, until we can get that point, the true hope of the gospel cannot be heard. Psalm 13 reminds us that God not only allows, but even invites language other than praise. It bears witness to the fact that God is ready to hear any type of news, even if it's not good news. And in this regard, Psalm 13 is not unique. 61 of the 150 psalms that we find in the Psalter in our Bibles, 61 of 150 are psalms of lament. That's over 40% of the Psalter is filled with lament. That's more by type than any other sort of psalm that we encounter, more than psalms of praise, more than psalms of thanksgiving. But sadly, we rarely encounter these types of psalms in Christian worship. For instance, a study done by W. Sibley Towner, a retired Old Testament professor from Union Seminary in Virginia, uh, shows that laments are disproportionately underrepresented in most Protestant hymnals. For every one hymn based on a psalm of lament in our hymnal, we find seven hymns based on praise or thanksgiving, even though, even though the psalms of lament far outnumber the psalms of praise. Much of the same is true about the type of psalms we, that are included in the Revised Common Lectionary. In that three-year cycle of biblical texts that are suggested to be read on Sunday mornings, 51 out of 150 psalms don't appear. Now, that's not all that surprising. The lectionary does not include every single text in the Bible. Certain things have to be left out for sake of space. But it's curious. It's curious to see what has been left out. Of those 51 psalms that are never mentioned in the Revised Common Lectionary, <clears throat> the vast majority of them are psalms of lament. Let me put the matter as bluntly as possible. For all intents and purposes, the church has lost lament as part of its language. What happens when we believe that the only thing we can say to God are words of praise? What is the cost of losing the language of lament here, let me suggest three costs of losing the language of lament, or three consequences. First, without the language of lament, we risk becoming Sunday-only Christians. Now, by Sunday-only Christians, I don't mean the sort of Christian who only acts Christian on Sunday, although that might well be a worthy topic for a sermon someday. But that's not what I mean. By, by, by Sunday-only Christian, I mean Christians who only have room for Sunday theology that is the theology of new life made possible on that first Easter Sunday morning. Now, don't get me wrong, Sunday theology is absolutely at the heart of our hope and faith in the Christian community. But we also must remember that the good news of the resurrection doesn't promise that life will always bring us good news. If we are Sunday-only Christians, 
how can we be a place of compassion for those who find themselves staring deep into the agony of Easter Friday? In the midst of death and grief, will there be space to ask, how long, O Lord, must I bear pain in my soul? If we are Sunday-only Christians, how can we be a place of comfort for those who find the uncertainty of Easter Saturday? In the midst of doubt and anxiety about what's to come, will there be space to ask, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? We need the language of lament because Christ has called us to be a church that is a place of compassion and compare and care for all peoples, whatever season they might be in. Now second, if we lose the language of lament, we risk stifling questions about injustice. At the heart of a lament psalm is the recognition that things in the world are not as they should be, that the world God made to be good is tilting back into chaos and darkness. There are people in this world this morning, right now, who are facing circumstances that drive them to pray this type of prayer of lament. The church needs the language of lament then because in the face of poverty and terrorism, in the face of violence and racism, we can't be silent. We can't remain only praising. In the face of such atrocities, we can't throw up our hands in resignation. As an ambassador of Christ's reconciliation, we must break the isolation of suffering. We must join in solidarity with those who long for justice. This is what laments enable us to do. Now third, and finally, if we lose the language of lament, we end up, I think, with a distorted view of what it looks like to be faithful. Here I want to circle back to that very difficult Genesis 22 text uh, that Anne Hel Henley uh, was helping the children with. It is, by all measures, a, conf a confounding text. Questions pile up upon questions when we read Genesis 22. One common interpretation, and it's not the only interpretation, but one common interpretation of, that, of this story in both Christian and Jewish traditions is that it illustrates Abraham's great faith. That is, it's a testing of Abraham's faith, and he rises to the occasion. And this might be so, but I'm more interested in what Abraham's faithfulness looks like. I think when we read this story, we often imagine Abraham receiving that unthinkable command from God to sacrifice his son, and then, without question or comment, setting out in silent obedience. So in our imagination, what becomes faithful is not just that Abraham obeys God, but that Abraham never questions the command in the first place. I think that the story doesn't say that, but I think that's what we imagine when we read Genesis 22. But I wonder if there's another way we might imagine the story. What if, as Abraham took that three-day journey to the place where he would offer up Isaac, what if we imagine him every step of the way praying Psalm 13? How long, O oh God, Abraham prays, will you hide your face from my son? How, must, how long must I bear the pain of this task? Consider us and answer, O oh God, lest my son sleeps the sleep of death. What if Abraham's faithfulness included prayers like Psalm 13? 
I can't tell you for sure if Abraham prayed this type of prayer or not. The text gives us no details. But I can say that throughout Scripture, the portrait of faithfulness that we find looks more like the type of honest questioning that we hear in Psalm 13 than silent obedience. The type of, this type of faith, after all, is the very type of faith we find in Jesus on the cross. In his final hours, as he faced the specter of death, he prays the opening lines of another psalm of lament, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So maybe it was that Abraham, like Jesus, long after him, maybe Abraham prayed words of lament as he faced this horrific trial. And maybe in both cases, with Jesus and Abraham, faithfulness comes not in the form of silent submission, but in the form of an anguished prayer for help that we find in the Psalms of Lament. What type of thing is it okay to say to God? With all due respect to the music group Point of Grace, I would answer the question they pose in their song a little bit differently. Who are we to give God anything but praise? We are people who have read Psalm 13. We are a people who long for honesty and authenticity in our spiritual lives. We are a people who are called to stand in solidarity with those who face injustice. And we are a people who hope in the resurrection of Easter Sunday, but are called to comfort those facing the pain of Easter Friday and Easter Saturday. Friends, the language of lament is part of the good news of the gospel, for it reminds us that God allows and even invites words other than amens and hallelujahs. God beckons us to come to Christ just as we are, with hard words and sad words, with words of loneliness and with words of doubt. For in the end, these two are words of faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.